I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. Happy birthday, darling. Happy birthday to me. Yeah. Uh, this episode is coming out on Tuesday the 13th, but tomorrow the 14th is your birthday. My birthday. True or false? True. All right. Yeah. Pi day. My day. <laughs> I'm old day. <laughs> so what have you chosen to bring to the people to celebrate with? Well, it wouldn't be my birthday if we didn't celebrate with a very me episode Yeah, of tragedy. Either that or like the history of Lisa Frank. Death and mutilation. And in particular? Uh, we are going to be talking about the uh, Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire mm-hmm. and uh, some of the labor struggles surrounding it before and uh, after. People looking at the title of this episode and wondering, did Grant go twice? Well, I think the fire will really like be like, oh, that's Elena. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. <laughs> Maybe they'll think that we like did it together. Imagine that. We're going to be looking at like a snippet of history, basically. Right. Uh, so not all of time. Not, not all of time. Not all of everything that has to do with this. So the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire, which we're going to talk about more in detail later. Mm-hmm. The, um, the headlining event. The headlining event took place in 1911 in New York, and it was a very big factory fire, and a lot of people died. <laughs> uh, that's what you need to know right now, I guess. Okay. We'll All get right. to more details later. What we're really looking at here, though, is factories around the beginning of the 1900s. So to talk about this, uh, one thing we should know about is the ILGWU, the International Ladies Garment Workers Union. Mm-hmm. This it's also what you're likely to get in any given spoon of alphabet cereal. Yes, this is very true. Mm-hmm. The ILGWU was founded uh, June 3rd, 1900 in New York City by seven local unions. At one time, it was one of the largest labor unions in the U.S. and one of the first U.S. unions to have primarily female membership. Oh, yeah. Um, Now, when it was founded, it had a few thousand members um, and it quickly grew. But then it also kind of came to a lull in membership growth because the leadership um, was very conservative and they tended to favor the interest of what was considered skilled workers. Uh Uh-huh. And this didn't sit well with the majority of the membership who were not considered skilled workers. Um, Skilled workers were the the higher positions within a factory. If Mm -hmm. you're making garments, it's like the cutters and the pattern makers. Not the the sewing machine core. Yes. Though skilled workers were very often like men. So it's interesting that Mm. they would favor the positions in an international women's uh, union. But, you know, um, but also they were often not immigrants, Uh especially female immigrants. So this union that uh, claimed to be for the interests of all garment workers, including foreign-born women. Yes. Their their leadership was more interested in U.S.-born men. On the average. Yes. This was not always the case, but this was definitely a problem they had. So even with that, though, membership grew dramatically not long after, mostly due to some strikes that happened within Mm -hmm. factories. In 1909, 
there was what was called the Uprising of 20,000. Or the New York shirtwaist strike of 1909. Less evocative, but more descriptive. (laughs) I got to give it that. Um, It was the largest female strike of American workers up to that date. It involved primarily women of many different backgrounds, but primarily Jewish women in shirtwaist factories. Mm -hmm. Um, Jewish women were very prominent in this field. More than half the workers were often Jewish women. Mm Mm-hmm. This strike was led by a woman by the name of Clara Lemlich, the ILGWU, and it was supported by the National Women's Trade Union League of America as well. Uh, Now, a little bit of background on factories at this time. During the 20th century, New York City was the garment-making capital of the country. Mm -hmm. There were 600 shops and factories working in New York City alone uh, with over 30,000 workers. $50 million worth of goods were produced annually in New York City. All factory workers within this field, but especially women, had to deal with a lot of very unfair things. Um, I mean, we're talking about the the industry that brought you sweatshops. Yeah, I mean, they're sweatshops. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's an extensive use of homework. Like, people were supposed to take their work home with them, finish Mm -hmm. it. There um, was limited entry into those skilled positions, the skilled workers, the skilled operator positions. Often these categories had nothing actually to do with being, like, skilled, just, Mm -hmm. you know, a man. Or they like to throw around a lot of titles of learner or various degrees of learning so they could pay you less. And, And this was just a label. It didn't really apply to what you were doing? No, it did not. And it did not, you would have to go through several, like, levels of learn Mm -hmm. before you would ever be able to reach this, like, skilled position, which you were never going to be offered, because they were probably just going to fire you and hire someone else who they could pay less. And as I said, it was, uh, the factories are very much dominated by immigrant workers. Half were typically Yiddish-speaking, and next were Italians. Uh, 70% of workers were female, half of whom were under 20. Uh Oh. So, like, very prominent... Mm-hmm. demographic here of what we're dealing with um so like your, your typical your, your most likely picture of a, of a worker would is a teenage yiddish speaking jewish woman yes okay shirtwaist production specifically in the garment garment making factories was primarily jewish women mm-hmm. these women had immigrated from countries where they had been doing similar work but there were already unions operating uh-huh Um, So a lot of them came to America already being a part of a union, having an opinion on factories, what should be asked of them. And as you look into stuff like this, and we'll see a little bit of in this episode, they become very vocal and active in labor laws and suffrage movements first. Mm -hmm. Um, They're the first to jump on the bandwagon, basically, of like, yes, we (laughs) should do this. Uh, Another thing that was very common for factories around this time was... Uh, 65 to 75 hour work weeks were normal, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, working Monday through Saturday. Uh, A lot of times people, I feel like, don't know this or it gets overlooked, but they often had to supply their own materials. Mm -hmm. So needles, thread, sewing machines, which are not cheap, and, um, you know, stuff they had to, like, bring to the factory. Right. In addition to they could be charged for damaging something they were working on, a flaw in it, being late, 
anything, their wages could be taken away from them while they're already paying for stuff to just be able to work there. Right. Uh, the peace rate work system. Yes. And homework. Yes. It's all to lessen the, the overhead and the liability of the company. Mm-hmm. So you stabbed the needle through your finger five times today. It's not my problem. You're, that, that was in your living room. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, but you didn't finish the piece and you got yeah. blood all over it. So we're not going to pay you for that. Right. You you had a quota. You didn't meet it. That's that's the rules of the game. Yep. See you 80 hours later next week. Now, I mentioned the uprising of 20,000. Yeah. Uh, in 1909. Yes. And I did forget one thing to say, right? That happened shortly before that. <laughs> so in September of 1909, the, the Triangle Factory owners... Mm-hmm. Um, had been trying to create their own company-sponsored union to get, like, this union thing off their backs of, like, people wanting this. And they did that, and they, like, put family members in officer positions and stuff. Yeah. You know, totally okay there. Sure. <laughs> um, And that didn't go over well, and yeah. workers wanted to join other unions. They were like, this mm-hmm. is not great. Um, so Triangle said that they would fire anyone who supported other unions, and they did, because many of the workers did not support this plan that they had. Right. They, they wanted somebody to take their concerns to management, mm-hmm. not management's brother. Yes. Yeah. So uh, many were fired, and they were off hiring new replacements. Now, this is part of what led to the uprising of 20,000. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ILGWU got involved and was supporting the idea of a strike for Triangle and other factories as well. So Clara Lemlick, who I mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, who was one of the leaders of the strike, on uh, November 22nd, 1909, um, she was attending a rally that was being held to support for this strike. Uh, she was a 23-year-old Jewish-Ukrainian immigrant, a garment worker, a socialist, and a board member, eventually, of the ILGWU. This uh, rally in support of a strike um, had been going on for a while. There was many speakers who spoke, um, who were prominent members of the labor, labor movement, mm-hmm. uh, who were speaking on solidarity and being prepared and kind of just like a very, like... Okay, we can do this, but we have to be organized and like Yeah. Not the like, let's do it. Just like <laughs> kind of talking around it. Clara demanded an opportunity to speak, and she said, I have listened to all the speakers and have no further patience for talk. I'm a working girl, one of those striking against intolerable conditions. I'm tired of listening to speakers who talk in generalities. What we are here for is to decide whether or not to strike. I make a motion that we go out in a general strike. And the crowd cheered because they were tired of also listening to other people. Yeah, they all had, like, <laughs> plans for dinner that they night. They all just worked, like, a 15-hour day. Like, they don't have time for this. So they cheered, and they voted, and they voted to strike. And some of them still made their reservations. <laughs> so over the next two days, 20,000 of the 32,000 workers in the shirtwaist trade walked. The strike did several things it uh challenged some very unfortunate preconceptions that Mm -hmm. conservative labor leaders had where they didn't think females or immigrants would like commit or organize or like really you know be involved Mm -hmm. uh and they were shown that no yeah we're, we're 
we are. They could li- look at the short history of their own movement. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. And that was something probably that was like already like proving some of those people wrong, but this was like a mass. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, those were individuals. Basically. This is a mass demonstration. Yes. And again, we're talking about, you know, selective leadership that was very conservative, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. not the overall organization. Um, now, the strike was violent and, you know, beatings and arrests happened. 723 girls were arrested during it, which is less than you'd think, but also like <laughs> it's a, a lot. lot. It's a lot. Yeah. Um, the strike lasted until uh, February 10th, 1910 mm-hmm. and was partially successful. The So that's about, um, that's from November to February. Right. So, so a few months. Three months, basically. Three months, yeah. Uh, so the ILGWU accepted a settlement that brought better pay, hours, and conditions, working conditions, um, but it didn't recognize the union. Mm-hmm. So it got them the things they wanted, but they were still without representation. Um, but the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory refused to be a part of it. So the, the other factories signed the deal? Yes. Okay. The triangle, though, was like, no. Nah. We're not doing this. Screw you all. <laughs> so, yeah. What are you talking about? Like 20,000 20, workers. Triangle had like five to 600 workers for them. Mm-hmm. So thousands of other workers got some better working conditions. But, yeah. Later in 1910, the ILGWU would also lead a strike named the Great Revolt. Now, this was of... <laughs> Who is naming this strike? <laughs> uh, this was 60,000 cloak makers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it also lasted for months um, with prominent uh, members of the Jewish community mediating between... The Ilgwa. <laughs> yes, the Ilgwa and uh, the Manufacturers Association. Mm-hmm. So another another... Big thing going on within a short period of time. Uh, before we move on, to, uh, I do want to talk about Clara Lemlech a bit more, though. Sure. She would become blacklisted in the industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, like that <laughs> happens a lot. Um, and she did find herself at odds with the leadership of Igwa. Igu, mm-hmm. What are we calling it? Ilgua. Ilgu. <laughs> You're, you're adding uh, some extra letters in there. I ILGWU. Uh, she went on, though, to be um, devoted to women's suffrage. Uh, she actually formed the Wage Earner Suffrage League, which was a working class alternative to the suffrage organizations that existed that mm-hmm. were more focused on wealthy ladies. Yeah. Though the Wage Earner Suffrage League needed the wealthy benefactors to keep going. But it's okay. It's called coalition building. Yes, yes. Yeah. And later, uh, she got into organizing housewives. The United Council of Working Class Housewives. And this was to address um, consumer issues, uh, housing, uh, access to education. um, And they also did a lot of stuff to raise money for striker relief in other uh, areas. Mm Mm-hmm. One thing they did was a widespread boycott of butcher shops um, <laughs> in 1935 because meat prices were so high. And mm. they actually shut down 4,000 butcher shops in New York City for a while. They they had some crazy, like, mob antics going on where they were just, like, rushing different butcher shops so they couldn't operate. <laughs> and that's how you do it. 
Vegans of the world, take note. Uh, she also continued to be active in a lot of other things. The Emma Lazarus Federation of Jewish Women's Clubs. Um, they protested nuclear weapons, campaigned against the war in Vietnam. They had um, alliances with the Sojourners for Truth, uh, African-American women's civil rights organization. And then in the 60s, she uh, ended up like moving to a Jewish home for the aged in L.A. And she got the management there to join in on the United Farm Workers boycott of grape and lettuce. <laughs> and incur- like also got involved in like helping the workers organize and mm-hmm. just being involved with that. So like this, so- this girl was just going strong the whole time. So Cesar Chavez had an ally in a nursing home. <laughs> yes. That she then got the nurses to unionize. That is a lifelong member of the labor community. Well, I don't know if she was... Actually, I don't know if it was the nurses or if it was that she just got involved with, like, the farmers, too, and, like, helping them. Oh, okay. I I think it was the farmers, from the way I read it, where she just, like, got involved with, like, assisting Mm -hmm. in their efforts. Okay. And, like... It's good to have a hobby at that age. But it'd be really cool if it was the nurses, too, but I don't don't think that's what it was. Mm Mm-hmm. But yeah, so she, she's pretty cool. She did a lot of things. I like that she retired and was like, you know what? We're going to boycott these grapes too. Yeah. <laughs> so with that, we're going to take a quick break and we'll come back and talk about death <laughs> and destruction. Happy birthday, folks. <laughs> So you ready? Yeah. So so the I L G W U. Yeah, the I L G W U. I think has been formed and has grown uh, and has proved itself through uh, several strikes, including one uh, uh, in the, the shirtwaist mm-hmm. sector. Triangle shirtwaist factory employees. Still do not have representation. It's not not going great for them. Well, let's see it get worse. Yep. This factory fire mm-hmm. happened on March 25th, 1911. Happy birthday, dear. It's almost its anniversary as well. Uh, it is the deadliest industrial disaster in the history of New York City and one of the deadliest in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So, the factory was on the 8th, 9th, and 10th floors of the the Ash Building, which is now the Brown Building, which is part of the campus of uh, NYU in Greenwich Village in Manhattan. So, they called it the Ash Building, and then it burned down. <laughs> yep. Well, it didn't burn down, but it burned. That's just cruel. That's no good. Uh, it was owned by Max uh, Blank. And Isaac Harris, uh, and they employed five to six hundred people. Uh, people worked nine hours a day, Monday through Friday, seven on Saturday. Fifty-two hours of work got you like probably seven dollars a week. Mm-hmm. Maybe twelve if you were like if you were a cutter, skilled. Yeah, yeah. So on March twenty-fifth, around four forty p.m., a fire flared up. In a scrap bin under a cutter's table. Mm-hmm. Um, most likely from an unextinguished match or cigarette butt that was, like, thrown in there. Mm-hmm. 
though we'll talk about it later there's like other theories but <laughs> this is like what the like fire examiner and everything says too mm-hmm. or investigator now a fire examiner has a pretty easy job that's <laughs> fire, fire right there fire investigator <laughs> that bin mm-hmm. held like two months worth of accumulated cuttings okay it was it was scraps from thousands of shirt waists mm. and not even the rest of the shirt no just just the just the waist of the shirt just mm-hmm. that little tiny bit <laughs> this happened on the eighth floor as i said it was eighth ninth and tenth so it was the lowest floor that this started on and it was also surrounded by hanging fabric everywhere <laughs> there wasn't a lot of things that weren't flammable in here <laughs> okay <laughs> There were plenty of things that weren't flammable. People's teeth and bones. <laughs> These people lacked calcium. They didn't have bones. <laughs> I think they could afford milk. That's <laughs> one thing people don't really tell you. If you look at, at pictures of New Yorkers in 1911. <laughs> they don't have bones. They were puddle people. Just a bunch of blobs saying, hey, I'm rolling here. Hydrate me. Moisturize me. <laughs> Five minutes later, the fire alarm was sent by um, someone passing by who saw smoke coming out the window. Mm -hmm. Now, one thing to know is that smoking had been banned in the factory, but it was quite well known that, like, cutters would, like, sneak a cigarette and, like, blow the smoke, like, I don't know, like, through their coat or something so, like, people wouldn't see it, but... (laughs) It is one of their many skills. Some of the other things that uh, people, like, newspapers tried to say happened was, well, maybe it was the engine of a sewing machine. Uh, it could have been arson, which is a good guess because the guys <laughs> that owned it had, were known for four previous suspicious fires uh-huh. um, at their companies, but they were not suspected this time. Were either Blank or Harris known tobacconists? Tobacconist. Did they enjoy uh, uh, the occasional puff? Probably. Hmm. Mm-hmm. The bookkeeper who was on the 8th floor was able to warn people on the 10th floor via telephone. Hey, there's a fire. This is bad. Copper wire, something else that doesn't burn. Mm. <laughs> uh, but there was no way to contact people on the ninth floor. They didn't have a phone there. Right. Uh, so the first... Or a system of knocks prepared. Yeah. yeah. So the first warning to the ninth floor came when flames arrived. That's when they were like, oh, man, there's a fire. I'll tell you one thing. It is uh, uh, an unambiguous signal. Yeah. Yeah. There's a fire. We should go. <laughs> Each floor had exits. Uh, mm-hmm. There were two fl- freight elevators. Don't use those in event of a fire. Well, you know, it might be your only option when you hear what else is going on. <laughs> uh, there was a fire escape, and then there was stairs, uh, two sets of stairs down to two different streets. So the flames were rising through the stairs out to one street. Okay. So they couldn't go down those. Some were able to go upstairs to the roof before... Never do that in a high-rise fire. (laughs) You shouldn't. Uh, But they couldn't go anywhere. So they were like, they went up to the roof. They're actually some of the people that actually did survive this. (laughs) But then those stairs were like overtaken and like people couldn't go up anymore. I'm just repeating what I know from my company's <laughs> yeah. annual fire safety test. Yeah. We have really good ratings, and I'm the floor yeah. warden for my floor. Well, things are going to get really <laughs> awkward if I ever have to talk about my, like, 
emergency preparedness meetings I have with my work about what to do in the event of you have to lock down children. Things are weird, guys. Things are weird in the world right now. Yeah, we don't do those drills. Just fire at, at my workplace. That's all we talk about at some meetings. Mm. Yep. Anyways, so the other stairway that went out to the street was locked. Oh, oh. Uh, it's to stop people from taking smoke breaks. It was because uh, they had, uh, they said they had problems with people stealing stuff. Mm-hmm. When really the only event they had um, was less than $20 worth of stuff was stolen once. But, you know, we locked the door because people can't steal stuff. It just goes to show that the lock system worked. So the only key the foreman had, and he escaped right away <laughs> with it. Oh, uh, so then people decided, hmm, the elevators are still running. Maybe we should try this. Every man so, for himself. And hey, the Yiddish-speaking women, whatever. The There were actually two elevator operators for these elevators, and they actually were credited with, with saving a lot of people because they made um, as many trips as they could until the heat from the fire started buckling the elevators which was only about three trips but it's still like they crammed as many people as they could in yeah yeah and got them out um some unfortunately thought well if the elevator's not coming back maybe i can go down to it by the cable oh and a lot of people decided to try to go down to to escape that way like fireman pole shoot down the cable didn't work really well no no god the one exterior fire escape people rushed to. They actually, the building was supposed to have a third indoor staircase, mm-hmm. but they got the city to, like, let them slide on it by building this exterior fire escape. Called up their alderman, got a waiver. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the fire escape was really badly made. Uh, it was hardly attached to the wall. Oh. Might have actually been broken, like, before this even happened. Um, But it very quickly twisted and collapsed under the weight and the heat. And uh, 20 people ended up falling 100 feet to the sidewalk. And that's gone. So then when firefighters arrived, uh, their ladders could only make it up to the 6th or 7th floor. Again, remember, this is 8th and up. Right. And about 62 plus people just started jumping. (laughs) Because they had nowhere else to go. And the rest were just stuck inside. So 146 garment workers died. Uh, 123 of them were women and 23 were men. Uh, Most were Italian and primarily Jewish immigrants. The youngest was 14. The oldest was 43. But most of them were 16 to 23 years old. Well, you can kind of assume what the causes of death was for most of them. Fire, smoke inhalation, and the jumpers. Yeah. Yeah. So over the, you know, weeks to follow, um, 100,000 people participated in the funeral march for these victims. The two owners survived. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were actually in the building, but also, like, escaped to the roof right away and were rescued from there later on. Uh, They were uh, indicted on charges of first and second degree manslaughter in April. Uh, the trial began in December, and their lawyers were um, able to destroy credibility of some of the survivors 
because they kept having them repeat their testimony again and again. And they're like, well, they're saying the exact same thing. They're not like changing their words. They must have been coached. Or maybe they just like were there. (laughs) Yeah. They like saw what they saw and they've been having to relive this for like a year. Mm -hmm. So if they change their story, they throw it out. But because they didn't change their story, it clearly should be thrown out. Yes. All right, I just want everybody to know that Chicago uh, Fire Department does not do roof rescues. So if you own a company and the building you're in catches fire, go to the roof and send everybody else down. Yeah. If you own the place, go to that roof. The lawyers also thought that the owners had no idea that the doors were being locked. Mm -hmm. They weren't a part of that. They never said to do that. But investigation found that, like, you know, the doors were locked and, like, it was a known practice that they were locking them during work hours and stuff. But that was also, like, well, like, we don't have proof of this. Mm-hmm. Um, the jury acquitted them on first and second degree manslaughter. But they uh, were found liable of wrongful death in um, 23 individual civil suits that happened in 1913. So it's like OJ style. They they got off the criminal charges, but they were found yes. liable for civil charges. Um, they had to pay out a grand whopping $75 per deceased victim in those 23 individual civil suits. Mm-hmm. Their insurance paid them like $60,000 more than like reported losses. This is what a human life is worth in the case of... Certain people who got anything. Yeah. If you're a 16 to 23 year old immigrant woman in New York. Yeah. Uh, And one thing to know is like in 1913, Blank was found uh, locking doors of his factory again and was arrested. (laughs) He was only fined $20 though. Nobody died that time, right? No one died that time. Okay. I mean, that's like more than a quarter of a person. Yeah. So that's a really hefty fine. This, This was like... You know, an inspection of something else, and they, like, found that he was doing it. But, like, of course he's not, he's going to keep locking people in. It's only $25 if they find out he did it. Mm-hmm. Or, like, 20 bucks. Like, psh, whatever. Probably need some good stuff that came after, right? Hey, that huge insurance pout is great news. They can build a new factory. They can start over again. Yeah. yeah. Well, we're, we're not going to talk about them. <laughs> So a committee on public safety was uh, formed Mm -hmm. uh, that was to identify problems and lobby for new legislation. Uh, Frances Perkins headed this. Um, She was an eyewitness to the fire and would later serve as the U.S. Secretary of Labor from 1933 to 1945. I mean, that's a pretty good time to be the Secretary of Labor. Yeah. You're going to be kept busy. What with that depression they've got going on? Yeah. Uh, the New York State Legislator also created the Factory Investigating Commission, uh, which looked into the conditions of factories and to create legislation to prevent, you know, loss of life from fires, unsanitary unsanitary conditions, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually, uh, thirty eight new laws came out of their series of investigations uh, around what was happening within the state. This led to a big modernization of state labor laws and mandated better building practices, fireproofing, mm-hmm. uh, alarm systems, and uh, you know facilities for workers to have access to. This kicked a lot of things into gear looking at what was going on. And 
you know, shortly before the Triangle Fire, like, couple within a couple years before, there was actually um, a fire that happened at a factory in New Jersey. It only killed, like, 20 people. Only. But um, there were reports that, like, talked about the conditions there, and they actually talked about the fact, like, there are hundreds, if not, like, thousands of places like this throughout New Jersey and New York that we will have worse problems like this with. Yeah. Like, they knew this was just finally the thing that, like, the public was an outcry. It was making people actually act. Mm -hmm. And it got them doing things. The American Society of Safety Engineers was also founded in October of 1911 as a result of the fire as well. Um, So there's a lot of things that came out of it, which was great. And it started, you know, getting things moving Mm -hmm. and more things to come. So the ILGWU, that could be a whole episode. Okay, like, we're not going to talk about everything that happened to them uh, after this. But a few things is that they did uh, continue to grow. Um, They organized 90% of the cloak makers in New York City. That's why New York is full of cloaks. You can spot a New Yorker from a mile away. Are they wearing a cloak or not? Yeah. Uh, There were um, quite a few political splits that then happened within the union. Mm -hmm. Things continued to grow and morph over the years. Uh, one thing that I think is very interesting, though, that does kind of connect to another thing, yeah, uh, is that the ILGWU merged with the Amalgamated Clothing and Textile Workers Union in 1995. The the this is Act uh, So, uh, well, they formed Unite. Thank goodness. The Union of Needle Trades, Industrial, and Textile Employees. And one marketing person. Well, Just one. That's all you need. And later, they merged with HERE, the Hotel Employees and Restaurant Employees Union in 2004, which formed Unite HERE. In our episode about the Congress Hotel, mm-hmm. I don't remember if we got into it, but the I don't remember if we talked about the strike there at all or in anything. But the Congress Hotel, which we talked about in our Spookums episode. Oh, no, we definitely talked about it. Okay. So Unite Here is the union that held, um, that was involved with a 10-year strike at the Congress Hotel here in Chicago. Um, It was Unite Here Local 1, and this was widely recognized as the world's longest strike. Mm Mm-hmm. Everything's connecting to some other episode nowadays. <laughs> I was like, oh, yes, look at this. Once, once you do 47 now. <laughs> Everything's connected. I, that's, that's one of the conclusions we drew from one of our first episodes. <laughs> so I just thought that was like an interesting thing of like this, you know, union we're talking about eventually. Yeah, yeah. Became this. And became pronounceable. And pronounceable, yes. Thank, thank you. <laughs> thank you for that. You know, with that many victims, uh, there's always going to be some people who are not identified. Oh. Uh, So there's a cemetery on the border of Brooklyn and Queens that has a monument um, to garment workers who died but were not identified. Mm -hmm. Uh, By that monument, there's five women and one man buried. And it was uh, only in 2011 that their identities were known. Oh. Um, so there's this uh, guy, Michael Hirsch. He is an, an amateur genealogist and historian, and he is credited with figuring out who they are and is backed by um, 
many organizations for like yes like this research is like the best we've seen and like Mm -hmm. what he has found out and created in the research he's done is like we are backing this including um the director of the keel center for labor management documentation and archives at cornell university this center has like a huge archive on the triangle and I'm glad the Kumda <laughs> is keeping the old traditions alive. Yeah. yeah. Now, um, some interesting things, though, with like uh, him finding out who these people are. After the fire, no New York City paper or agency published or, or made a complete list of the dead at the time. Uh-huh. It was never fully like listed in one place back then. The most thorough list actually came when 130 of the names were compiled by um for a book that was written Mm -hmm. um but they were pulled from different newspapers okay so uh hirsch ended up you know looking at microfilms of uh mainstream daily newspapers of the time um that were very much overlooked for information Mm -hmm. in the past and also ethnic publications that he had translated right the the papers in the jewish neighborhoods yeah or italian or whatever like smaller um, you know, background, you know, demographics that were there. And not written in English. And not written in English. Um, so he looked at 32 different papers, you know, articles after the fire where, uh, relatives were still looking for missing people. He looked at census, uh, records, death and burial certificates, marriage license, um, reports on funerals. He looked at relief payments to families of the dead from like churches and organizations, like, if it was out, he looked at it. <laughs> um, he also sought out descendants of who he believed them to be. So he could, like, compare stories and names and, like, mm-hmm. put the pieces together. Um, Doing he, that genealogy backwards for once. Yes. <laughs> and he also uh, visited the graves of each known victim because he wanted to create a complete list. Um, so he was finding the graves to, like, compare names because a lot of the lists had misspellings. Or um, slight alterations to names. Mm -hmm. Um, Or some people just weren't put on the list. Right. Um, During his visit to one of the cemeteries, he was looking specifically for a grave for Isabella Tortorelli. And uh, he found a family monument for two sisters. Mm -hmm. Um, Her older sister was Maria and was not on a list. He'd never seen anything about it. But she was a fire victim. They were never able to identify her body. Like, they, the family was never able to, like, be like, yes, that's her. Mm-hmm. Um, so she wasn't actually, there was the monument to them, but she wasn't buried there. So she was one of the yeah. mystery unidentified people that he was trying to find. And, and now the family knows that they're, that, that those remains are, are over in Brooklyn. Yes. Yeah. The art, the stuff I was reading about this was from around the time this came out in 2011. And at that time, none of the descendants of the unidentified were looking to do any DNA testing or anything to try to like mm-hmm. match. Um, a lot of them were just like, well, it's good to know. <laughs> or yeah. like, yeah, kind of just like to have that confirmation that, yes, we knew she like this person did die there, but no one like could tell us anything mm-hmm. type thing. But that's pretty amazing that this guy like yeah, yeah. did all this research and like went through all the fact check fact checking in a way that no one else had. Mm-hmm. And it was like a 
personal project of his. Um, and I believe he ended up being like a producer on like a history channel or something, a <laughs> documentary about it, like after this all happened. But I can't remember what it was. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so that's uh, that's it. So darling, did you did you learn anything? I, I think this story, both the fire and the, the context leading into it, is a great example of when people agitate uh, for solutions to problems, but then the solutions that they're offered don't really cut to the heart of it. Mm-hmm. So if they weren't working in, in sweatshop conditions, if uh, management trusted their employees, maybe that door would be unlocked. Mm-hmm. Maybe if there was oh, I don't know, a 15-minute break every four hours. You wouldn't have people hiding their cigarette butts in scrap piles and there wouldn't be a fire in the first place. And then later, when these conditions directly lead to a fire, instead of protecting labor, they just like, maybe we should build buildings better. And yeah, you should, but there's... There's other things going on here too. You you could be uh, focusing on many more causes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we don't just do active shooter drills in your theater camp. Yeah. Yeah. You know, for my three-year-olds, <laughs> I shouldn't have to have nightmares leading up to camp about where I'm going to hide my campers mm-hmm. in a classroom. And hey, preparedness is great, but if that's the the centerpiece of your plan, it's a bad plan. Yes. Yeah. I I guess to get more political about stuff nowadays. (laughs) But when I was writing this, as I feel like what comes to mind every time I do like a disaster thing that leads to more laws and Mm -hmm. stuff and things that need to happen. You know, nowadays something happens and people are like, it's only been five minutes. Like, don't politicize it. (laughs) Like, take your politics out of it. Let people grieve. No! People (laughs) just died. Same, like, do you think these families of these, like, a hundred and, you know, fifty people mm-hmm. were like, please give us a moment here to not be mad. Right. Like, no, they were. They knew that the situation was bad, but they didn't have a choice to not work there. Right. And they're like, we knew bad things were going to happen because thing- this is a bad working condition. Things need to change. And their sisters are working in the, the, the sweatshop, sweatshop next down door. The street. And the survivors are going to be competing with them for the limited spaces. I think there was actually, so I was a big historical fiction reader as a kid. And I remember there, I don't remember what it's called, but there was a book I read that was about an immigrant family in New York where the daughters worked in sweatshops. And it literally was about the one daughter like being in the triangle shirtwaist fire and mm-hmm. the other sister having to return to her job at another sweatshop mm-hmm. after her sister burned to death. Yeah. Like, no. <laughs> I think I, if I remember correctly, I think she like got, you know, involved in politics, like the politics of it all and unionizing mm-hmm. and like what happened there cannot happen to us, cannot happen to the other factory, cannot happen to the other factory girl. Mm-hmm. Because if we don't say stop, if we don't say this is enough, it's just going to keep happening. Mm-hmm. Young young adult or child <laughs> historical fiction is really like intense stuff, you guys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Get radicalized by the American Girl series. No, it's more like the Dear America series. Okay. Uh, which they like don't publish all of anymore. They only publish like five of them now or something. Dear America was hardcore. Dear America was. My goodness. <laughs> There's some intense books. 
<laughs> like, there's one about the Trail of Tears. Yeah. Nothing good comes at the end of that. <laughs> Come on, American Girl, step up. What you got? What you got? Well, I mean, American Girl, what, like, the one girl's best friend died on the crossing to America, or then they had to, like, shove her overboard, like... <laughs> Those 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 were like your introduction to it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. To prepare you for like Dear America, and then you're like, oh man, there's no coming back from this. You know the scariest one? Hmm. Actual America. Like yeah. when you close the book and you look out the window. You're like, Damn, it's bad. <laughs> so with that, we're gonna take a quick break. We'll be right back with uh, all of the birthday wishes people birthday! wrote in for you. It's my birthday. I'm old. That's okay. Welcome back, everybody. Hello. We got some letters, mm-hmm. and I guess we ought to read them. Yep. Uh, so Ian sent us our first letter, and uh, our prompt for this time, because I, I didn't know what my episode was going to be about. <laughs> I want to know people's favorite type of pie, mm-hmm. because I like pie, and it's almost my birthday. And I usually eat pie on my birthday, which happens to fall on pie day. Yeah. I didn't know that about like pie day until I was like in my 20s. I don't think it was really a thing until a, you were in your 20s. Yeah. So like coincidence. Yeah. <laughs> just don't really like cake. It's it's okay. So Ian's not uh, a big fan of dessert pies in general. Finds them overly sweet and syrupy, which I do agree. A lot of the store brand bought ones are like pretty nasty. Mm-hmm. Really depends the on the place. The pies you make are. I make really because I don't do like the goo. That's true. I'm not. I'm not a goo pie maker. He he can get behind like pumpkin and key lime, uh, but would rather have them in pudding form. Uh, <laughs> but big into meat pies, you mm-hmm. know, chicken, veggies, steak, and potatoes. Those types of pies. And Ian does talk a bit about how meat pies are popular in almost every English-speaking part of the world. Um, Though, like, the United States probably falls, like, at the bottom of that. Which I would agree with in some aspects, except, like, chicken pot pie is going strong. Mm -hmm. There are some ethnic enclaves. We did talk about Cornish pasties Mm -hmm. in our Copper Country episode. I think what we fall into is they aren't so much like a pie as they are like a handheld pie. Mm-hmm. That That is where meat pies really carried on and in I'd the U.S. And I'd say the U.S. isn't the only exception unless you're talking about predominantly white English-speaking places. Because yes. you know what? Meat pie is not a big thing in India or Anglophone Africa. <laughs> the Caribbean, not big into meat pies. From, and I, I could be totally wrong here, but I had a... I had a pen pal in india Mm -hmm. we used to trade recipes back and forth which was very hard for me to do because i found out she does not have an oven of any sort oh it was where where she lived it was very common to not have any type of oven anything that was supposed to be baked Mm -hmm. i couldn't send her that recipe because she couldn't make it so i don't know like how common that is Mm -hmm. but that was something from where she lived in india like ovens were not a thing you had anyway so that might be something to do there with like Mm -hmm. pies and that's what we've fought a war for, to not have to eat meat pies. <laughs> yeah. Because anytime people talk about meat pies, I'm just thinking Sweeney Todd. Sweeney Todd. <laughs> yeah. Try the priest, and like, I don't want to have anything to do with that. Well, Ian does like talk a little bit about, though, how, um, why that might have happened. And uh, one thing is, like, sandwiches became really popular, and were probably mm. cheaper to make and easier to make. And also, nowadays, you know, we have, like, 
frozen food pie things that the american meat pie is the hot pocket it is this is true (laughs) so it might like be putting some generations off based on that or Mm -hmm. like the fact that i mean i don't know how many frozen pot pies you ate as a kid (laughs) i really don't want to eat frozen ones but homemade pot pie is still great oh yeah yeah and the problem with poet is how do you know it's deceased Try the priest. <laughs> Anyways, that was really, we really veered off a lot there. So thank you, Ian. Great conversation starter there. Uh, David wrote in, and their favorite pie is probably a good old pecan pie. I like it. Uh, I find that sometimes there's a ratio problem of the nuts, nuts to, to goo. Nuts to goo. Yeah. yeah. That it's, it's dependent on your nuts to goo feelings. Yeah. Although d- the dessert David makes for family events is not... A pecan pie, but a no-bake cheesecake pie. Oh. And David provided that recipe. Ooh. Yeah. So thank you thank very you. much. Aaron sent us an email answering a lot of old prompts and also sending some dog pictures of a corgi. Congratulations on finishing your uh, ketchup binge. You made it. Yes. So yeah, Aaron's listened to every episode. Well, except the Soviet space dogs, but that's because it probably would have been very sad. It's a mix. There's sad parts. There are sad parts. I'm glad we did that one before we had Moki. <gasps> right? We did that. We, I don't think I could have handled it. Only chimps from now on. <laughs> Aaron's favorite detective is Sam Vimes from Discworld subseries about the watch. Everybody loves that Pratchett. That, cool. That Pratchett boy. Also favorite alien is Chewbacca. And not a prompt thing, but related to the Roswell episode, Aaron's Corgi Loaf uh, is a rescue from the Roswell area. Oh. It's a little alien dog. Aww. And then another thing in relation to our Indiana Spookums episode about Lady Bluebeard. The the serial killer of the Indiana Dunes. Yes. Aaron wanted to let people know that each month Amazon Prime does an early free ebook release through a program called Amazon First Reads. And this month, uh, one of the books is called Hell's Princess, and it's about Lady Bluebeard. Huh. Hasn't read it yet, but if that's something you're interested in and you have Prime, go check it out. (laughs) Favorite thing from 2017 was getting on the cover of a print RPG book as part of the writing team that worked on the 13th Age Bestiary 2. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 13th Age's bestiaries are phenomenal books. I enjoy the game, but if, if you play any other sort of fantasy RPG, just get the bestiaries. They're full of so many brilliant plot hooks. Cool. It's it's so much more than just the monster stats. A serial killer prompt would, would be between Jack the Ripper, the Zodiac Killer, and the Cleveland Torso Murderer. I do not know about the Cleveland Torso Murderer. I need to look this up. Did the rest of the person die too? <laughs> <laughs> but a uh, common element for all of those is the mystery of their identity, mm-hmm, which makes mm-hmm. them very appealing. And uh, the last and current, current prompt, uh, favorite fruit pie is cherry and favorite cream pie is coconut cream pie. I like that you split the category. I feel like that is important for talking about pies. Yeah, yeah. What's your favorite meat pie, though? Yeah. Purin writes in uh, with the sad fact that there is no pie in Asia. Very sad. There you go. It's very sad. Uh, Purin has had rather little contact with pies apart from time he spent in Australia. So with that limited field of view, beef bacon cheese pie. I want to eat that. Is Purin's favorite. I assume there's maybe, like, egg involved to, like, mesh that together, because I don't know how that would work. Yeah, that that sounds like a, a weird calzone to me. 
I'm thinking maybe something like a quiche-ish thing. All right. All right. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm just very curious how that would work. Yeah. Maybe there's just a lot of cheese. Maybe. Thank you very much, Purin. Jeff sent us an email and pictures of Phineas. Oh, I love Phineas. It's a very pretty dog. It's a very pretty dog. So favorite uh, pie experience we get is going to Brown's Pie Shop in Lincoln, UK, and having a beef and Irish stout pie after climbing up a monstrous hill. (laughs) Uh, And then favorite sweet pie is a peach berry pie at a local farm store. That sounds really good, too. Just part of a book club and is tasked with getting five possible uh, candidates for book club. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was asking if we have any favorite history books with, that we might suggest, uh, either like true history, hist- historical fiction. Or alt history. Or alt history. Because apparently that's what this book club is into. Yeah. So we thought well, we could give some suggestions. Mm-hmm. And then I guess if anyone out there has some suggestions, yeah. like send them to us and we'll forward well, them to Jeff. Absolutely. Just came out this year to observe the centennial, mm-hmm. uh, October by China Mieville, telling the story of the uh, October Revolution, but with one of today's most revered novelists, uh, skill for, for narrative and character being your guide through the actual events. It's It's great. Go read October. No, my my suggestion, I don't really think it would work for like a book club because it's like big and like not like regular novel. Mm-hmm. But um, not that long ago, um, I read Pioneer Girl, the Annotated Autobiography, which is about Laurel Ingalls Wilder and her Little House books. It's really good. It's mm-hmm. really interesting. The Little House books, you know, are very much like children's books, mm-hmm. but... The autobiography here, like, really goes into what she left out, (laughs) what is not true. It was just, it was very interesting. It really dove into, like, kind of breaking down these books that you read as a kid and telling you the truth. But it's, it's dense. It's really dense. Takes a while. Lots of notes. (laughs) Uh, Which is why I'm not recommending anything by Hobsbawm, even though he's a fantastic historian. Uh... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, mine might not help with book club, but I think people should check it out because it's very interesting. And if those books like were something you were into. Uh, if you enjoyed one of our earliest episodes on TV ads and presidential elections, The Selling of the President is a fantastic thing. I mentioned it in that episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's a firsthand account of Nixon's second uh, presidential race, his first successful presidential campaign. Uh, and I know you guys, you mentioned that your book club really likes Devil in the White City. That's something you've already read. I'm sure you are aware of that writer's <laughs> other books, but they're good. Yeah. <laughs> read the other ones, too. <laughs> they're just, just like it and just as great with mm-hmm. how they're written. And then uh, maybe other people will have ideas for you. And yeah, we'll, we'll see what the rest of the History Honeys community has yeah. for, has I'm for your book club. I'm excited to see actually what other people suggest. Yeah. Why haven't we done this before? Let's join Jeff's book club. <laughs> Should we start a book club? We do not have time to start a book club. <laughs> but that would be fun, like a History Honeys book club. That would be something. We're going to be the new Oprah. Yeah. <laughs> So, darling, where can people send emails like these? Uh, they can go to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. Uh, that's right. That's where you're going to want to send anything you might like to hear on the air. A question, a suggestion, a story to share, uh, or 
checking in with our uh, uh, episode-by-episode prompts. Yeah. And uh, do you have a prompt for us? I want to know people's favorite Australian. (laughs) Hugh Jackman. We might get a lot of... That's what I got. (laughs) The huge acting man. (laughs) The huge jacked man. Yeah. You can also follow us on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, and those are all at History Honeys. Mm Mm-hmm. You can email that prompt, reply to it, of favorite Australian to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. And those social medias are a great way to give us your book suggestions to to forward on to Jeff. Tonight, uh, if you're hearing this on release day, tonight is part two of my my Roll20 Presents guest spot miniseries continuing our Breakfast Cult game. Yeah. And if you're not listening to this on release day, check out the uh, the, the VOD. It's still there. Yeah. <laughs> it won't be live, but I'm sure it'll still be great. Yeah. What you can go do is you can leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast listening place mm-hmm. and download place. Uh, <laughs> those ratings and reviews help others find us, help with those, you know, algorithms and stuff that make things tricky. <laughs> And you can also go out and tell a friend. Word of mouth is a powerful, powerful tool. We do not advertise anywhere in any way. The the growth we get is just because of people who believe in the show. People like you. Yeah. And consider it a birthday present. Aww. Aww. And with that, I'm Grant. I'm Elena. And remember, history's better with with your your honey. honey.